And then the fact that the United Methodist Church has planted almost as many churches as any denomination in the world other than the Roman Catholic Church. We made the news because we can't figure out how to get along, disagree agreeably, move forward together. I'm heartbroken and I'm embarrassed, but I'm hopeful. But before I tell you my story, I want to say this. I don't need for you to agree with me. And I hope you don't need to agree with me. We need a big tent. We need a large table with a lot of voices and all perspectives at the table because a diversity of voices and a diversity of theological perspectives are what make us richer and fuller as people. And when we as a culture can't figure out a way to stay together, we, we move into, the, as we as a church, we move into the way the culture exists where you're on one side or you're on the other, that is a problem to me. I don't want to do any harm to anyone. So I'm going to tell you the truth today. But before I get started, I want to say this. I feel extra, extra protective of queer people because of the harm done to them by the church. And you may be wondering why I use the word queer. In the 80s, we used to play games that were mean and hurtful using that word. But it's been reclaimed as a word to mean an inclusive difference. We must sit with the reality that we have done harm to people. And we've pushed people away with our hypocrisy and it's glaring to the outside world. In about 2003 or 2004, I remember having a conversation with a young man named Anthony. He'd been coming to the church I was serving in as the youth pastor for about a year, and the youth group had grown in, in about three years from 15 to 20 kids to about 70 to 80 kids, and Anthony was around a lot. And he came to me one day, and he was one of those kids that just kind of could push your buttons. You know what I mean? Like, I, I recognize those kids because I was one of those kids. And he came to me with that button-pushy kind of face, and he said, hey, Ross, I love coming to church here, and it's fun to be around all the kids, and the music's awesome, and I really like hanging out with you. I just wonder how you feel about me being gay. And I said, Anthony, I love you, and I want you to feel like you're welcome here. And I'll stand with you, and I'll make sure that you're not picked on, and I'll make sure that nobody's mean to you. But... Do not believe that this is God's best plan for your life. I know a lot of people, and I'm friends with a lot of pastors, who agree with my statement to Anthony. And they tell me they've got a lot of gay people in their congregations. About 5% of all church members in the Methodist Church are gay. And that those folks know that they're loved and welcomed, but if, that if they ask their pastor, their pastor will tell them this is not God's best plan for you. And these friends of mine don't think they can ever say it's okay to be gay because of the way that they read the scriptures and understand them. And they believe that it's clear that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. They take 
five to seven verses at most that are in scripture and build their entire theology around those five to seven verses when it comes to homosexuality, not their entire theology. But I know that none of them have an ounce of hate for gay people in their lives. This last week, one of the things that was breaking my heart were liberal and progressive pastors going after conservative pastors, saying really hateful things toward them about the fact that they had hate in their hearts, and I do not believe that with any fiber of my being. I'm trying to articulate to you what was called this last week the traditionalist understanding of homosexuality in the Methodist Church. My friends that are traditionalists are not trying to do harm. They're trying to love people the best way they know how. In the fall of 2006, I was driving from here, here in Las Cruces, to Carlsbad, New Mexico, where I was serving as a youth pastor with a really good friend of mine. His name is Chance. Chance was getting ready to graduate from high school, and we had come here to watch a volleyball game. The Aggies were ranked in the top 15 in the nation, and they were playing Hawaii, who was in the top 10, and the Aggies beat them guns up. <laughs> and as we were going to Carlsbad, we went over Guadalupe Pass, and we were somewhere around White City. Anybody know White City, the affordable resort? <laughs> Sorry, you broke down. <laughs> and around White City, Chance started trying to tell me that he was gay. <laughs> I had an idea that he was gay, but I didn't know that I really wanted to know. In fact, I didn't want to know for sure whether he was gay or not because I didn't know how I would handle it. I didn't want to lose that friendship. And so I started praying, God, if he's going to tell me he's gay, I need you to give me words to say to him because I don't want to hurt him. And I promise you, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, like every fiber by being, I promise you, the voice of God spoke to me, the Spirit of God said to me, tell Chance you love him and that I love him just the way he is. The problem was I wasn't sure that I believed that at the time. I wanted to believe it, but I wasn't sure that I did. And so Chance kind of him hawed around. He didn't really stutter or stammer. He was just kind of like, well, Rosh, you know that I'm, uh, well, I'm, you know. And then the subject would change and it would come back around. You know that I'm, well, I'm, and, and I made the decision that I wasn't going to say, yeah, I didn't know. I needed him to say the words, I'm gay. Because I had a feeling that I was the first adult that he was saying this to. And he needed to practice saying it. If he was going to live as a gay man, he needed to say these words. And he didn't know that God had just spoken to me. And I didn't know how obedient I was going to be. And Chance finally said, Ross, I'm gay. And the way that I remember it, and I spoke to Chance yesterday and got permission from him to tell our story. And I said, I love you. And God loves you just as you are. And then I had a crisis of faith. 
In the months after that, there were several college students who came out to me. We had a woman who was a small group leader for junior high girls in our youth group. The senior pastor and I started getting letters saying, this woman is gay. And if you continue to let her put, if you continue to put our junior high girls in danger by having her leave them, we will make it public that you're doing this and that you will lose the church. And the senior pastor said, homosexuality and pedophilia are not synonymous, so bring it on. But I had a crisis of faith. And I didn't know how to reconcile my conservative beliefs with what God had told me to say. And I've always wanted to be a person who falls back on the word of God. And the gospel of John says that the word of God is Jesus Christ. I wanted to fall back on Jesus, but I couldn't find anything where Jesus talked about homosexuality. It would have, life would be a lot easier if he had just written his own book. <laughs> So I started where I knew to start, which was with Genesis 19, verses 1 through 5. You know it as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The two messengers entered Sodom in the evening. Lot, who was sitting at the gate of Sodom, saw them, got up to greet them, and bowed low. I mean, think about the hospitality here. These visitors come to town, and they see this man, and this man sees them and bows to them. And he said, come to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can get up early and go on your way. But they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. And he pleaded earnestly with them. So they went with him and entered his house. And he made a big meal for them, even baking unleavened bread. And they ate. And before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, surrounded the house and called to Lot, where are the men who arrived tonight? Bring them out so that we may have sex with them. And you know what happened. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of this. But the problem with using Sodom and Gomorrah in this stance, and to use it as a way to speak against homosexuality, is that it's a misunderstanding of scripture at best, and it shows some biblical illiteracy at worst. In Genesis 19.5, the word that is translated as have sex with is yada in Hebrew, Y-A-D-A. It's also translated as rape and molestation. But the prophet Ezekiel writes in chapter 16, verse 49 through 50 of his oracle, where God spoke through him. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her sister, she and her daughters had pride excess food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me, therefore I removed them when I saw them. I think you would agree with me that rape and molestation are abominable. God thinks so too. The scary part is that it seems like the lifestyle that I live, one of pride, excess food, prosperous ease, 
that's not a good thing in God's eyes either. So I better do my best to take care of the poor and the needy. So I didn't know what to do. My, my plan of using Sodom and Gomorrah to back up my belief, and I was having this wrestling match, honestly, between like, were, were those my thoughts because of my love for chance, or was that actually God speaking to me? Anybody ever had that argument with yourself? And so I was having that argument, and I was trying to prove that it was just my thoughts because my faith was kind of built around this other understanding, and I couldn't use Sodom and Gomorrah, so then I went to Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, right? <laughs> And especially a couple of verses. We really like Leviticus 18.22, which says, You must not have sexual intercourse with a man as you would with a woman. It's a detestable practice. We like that. We can use that verse. And we like Leviticus 20.13, although not quite as much, because oh, we can't really believe the whole thing. But it says this, If a man has sexual intercourse with a man as he would with a woman, the two of them have done something detestable. They must be at executed. Maybe we won't use that verse. <laughs> Progressives and liberals will use the book of Leviticus in response to that. And they'll say, but you eat shellfish? The book of Leviticus says you can't eat shellfish. And they'll say, it's a waste of good money and beef to eat a steak well done. I would agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> and you're not supposed to eat meat that has any pink or blood in it. It's supposed to be cooked all the way through according to the book of Leviticus. Otherwise, it's unclean. That's all true, except using shellfish and uncooked meat to argue against the other verses in Leviticus is like using Sodom and Gomorrah to argue against homosexuality. It doesn't work in the greater context of the Bible because in the book of Acts, Peter has an argument with God in which Peter is having a vision and, and he sees a sheet coming down from heaven and on it are all sorts of food. It's like pork chops and bacon and shrimp and, and maybe like bacon wrapped shrimp with jalapenos in I mean, the good stuff, you know, and it's coming down and God is, it's mesquite, cooked over mesquite coals and stuff, and God is, says, Peter, take this food and eat it, and Peter goes, this is some sort of trick. I've never eaten unclean food in my life. I've never defiled myself by eating unclean food, and God, I don't intend to start now. And God said, Peter, don't call any food I've created unclean. Take this food and eat it. So this shellfish and uh, medium rare steak argument doesn't work. But progressives who read deeply into scripture also say this with Leviticus. There are classifications of things in the book of Leviticus. And these sections where it's talking about homosexuality fall into those classifications. So there are different classes of things. And you're not supposed to mix those classes of things. So if you have a garden plot, you can only put one type of food in that garden plot according to Levitical code. So I break Levitical code every year when I plant peppers and tomatoes and herbs and sometimes okra all in the same garden plot. And my favorite jeans, when I wear them, I'm breaking Levitical code because they're made out of cotton and some sort of stretch material, and they feel like sweatpants. They are so awesome. But 
I'm breaking Levitical code when I wear them. And has anybody ever petted a labradoodle? Oh man, they're so soft and it's, they just want to squeeze them, you know? And Levitical code says you're not supposed to mix two different breeds of animals. And in that same Levitical code, men and women are two different classes. Women and men are the same classification. And so what that law is talking about is that when a man lies down as if he were a woman in a submissive position, he is mixing two different classes, and that is breaking the law. So if we're going to use Leviticus as our argument, it's hypocritical at best, if you know the argument. If you don't know the argument, it's not a big deal, but now you know the argument. What was I supposed to do? <coughs> well, as a Christian, that's the Old Testament. Let's move to the New Testament. Paul clearly talks about in Romans chapter 1, men should not lie with men and women should not lie with women. And, and when they do, they've been given over to their sexual lust and it's an abomination to God. And I was like, there we go. There's the verse I'm going to build my, my faith around. This, this issue, like, that's how I'm going to build it. And so I started digging in because I want to be a person who tries to, like, be honest intellectually and with my faith. So I started reading about this. And what was really going on to my understanding is that Paul was writing about worshiping other gods. And you know how it was in Rome. You've seen the movies. There were a lot of things that were crazy and permissible. And one of the things that would happen is orphan boys would be taken and be forced into prostitution at the temples of other gods. And men, Christian men, would go to those temples. Anybody cheer for the Patriots? They would go to those temples, and they would, and I'm not joking, that's ridiculous, y'all. <laughs> Christian men would go to those temples to worship at the altar of another god by raping boys. That is different than two people being in love. That is an abomination. There goes Romans. What about 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians? The word used for sexual fornication in those instances is pornea. It means fornication or sexually deviant behavior. And it's the same root word where we get our word, you guessed it, porn. It's speaking out against sex without love. Not gay love, but any sex that was cheap and without emotion or spirit. Imagine being in a relationship with someone where you are seen solely as an object for their gratification. Put yourself in that place. It would hurt. It would cause harm. And that is sinful. That, gentlemen, is why pornography is sinful. So why does the Bible in English still translate the words the way it does? That's my next step. That's where I was next. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really know all of 
of the reasons why that happens, but here's what I do know. Today, there are biblical scholars who are learning more about the anthropology and archaeology of ancient times. They're learning more about the ancient languages and how translation happens working within context. And that's why biblical scholars don't open up the King James Version of the Bible to do really in-depth biblical studies. They've opened up the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible to do that if they're going to study in English. And that's why biblical scholars would say if you're going to really like study deep into the Bible, don't use the message because it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. It's like taking English words and reworking the English words. And that's fine and good for reading. And if you like the message, have at it. Read the Bible however you accept it the best. But at the same time, we have to understand that progress is made in our understanding and our studies. I read eight different translations of these verses and found eight different ways to translate those words. frustrating and God frustrates me to no end about this sort of thing because every time I think I've argued God into a corner God is wilder than me and is so much wiser than me and so much more understanding than me that I can't pin God down and dang it makes me mad did you know there's a place in the Bible where God says take a cloth cut it into the, in a circle and in the middle of it cut a hole in it and you're going to put your head through that hole and you're going to wear that as a prayer shawl and on the corners of it put tassels, prayer tassels. Would you please tell me where the corners of a circle are, God? <laughs> I think sometimes God is saying, here's the way things are working right now, figure it out. God has given us free will to move, and we have to be very careful. That's why I don't call myself a liberal. I am not permissive. I think there are boundaries and there are lines to be drawn, and we have to be careful where we place them. But at the same time, I want progress. I want, I believe God gives us understanding. I'm a Methodist to my core. Like, the, the Methodist quadrilateral, now I'm getting all nerdy with you, but like, we can use our brains with our faith. So we use our understanding the best we have, and we use it prayerfully, and we work on our salvation with fear and trickling. And that's what I'm trying to do, and that's what I've always tried to do. At my ordination, Bishop Dan Solomon laid his hands on me, and Bishop Bledsoe blessed me. And then afterwards, Dan Solomon preached a sermon where he said, when you're having a hard time understanding what the Bible is saying, use Jesus as the plumb line. I want to read something to you that's really crazy. It's the only place I think that Jesus may have been talking about homosexuality. It comes in Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 10 and ending with verse 12. 19, 10 through 12 of Matthew. It's right after every divorced person's least favorite passage in the Bible, which is another Bible study for another time. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been born so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who've been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can it's fascinating that the disciples, upon hearing God's great regard for marriage, find it hard to imagine sustaining such a relationship. Turns out marriage isn't for wimps, y'all. 
But the Apostle Paul disagrees with that statement I just made. He says marriage is for wins. That if you burn with lust and you can't control that lust, that's the only reason that you should get married. Because it's easier to serve God in singleness and in celibacy than it is in marriage. Which makes me wonder why we hold married families with 2.3 kids, a well-behaved dog, a three-bedroom house, and a picket fence up as the ideal Christian life. The ideal, according to Paul, is a single person who lives their entire life in service to God, but that's just Paul. Why hold in high regard as someone who is inspired to write the word of God? I think, sisters and brothers, that we worship at the altar of marriage and sex instead of the altar of Jesus Christ. Jesus it seems, recognizes marriage as difficult, and that not everyone is cut out for marriage. And he also recognizes that there are all kinds of people in this world. Some are made for marriage, and some are made to be single. Some are born different from others. Some have had difficult things done to them. Imagine a man being raped in prison. Some have chosen to make sacrifices based on their beliefs. Essentially, even as we look to Jesus to grant what the normative status ought to be, or most regular or natural to us, he recognizes that people come in all varieties and even including their disposition towards marriage and sexuality. And yet Jesus accepts them all. Jesus accepts them all. Jesus accepts them all. Jesus accepts Simon the Zealot, basically a terrorist. The equivalent of an Israeli settler of today. Jesus accepts Matthew, the tax collector, who would have hated Simon the Zealot, and who Simon the Zealot would have hated also. They, they could not have gotten along. They were on complete opposite sides of whatever spectrum humanity wanted to create. But Jesus accepted them both into his inner circle. And Jesus accepts Peter, the fisherman, who seems to be a great leader, but not that smart. And Jesus accepts Thomas, who questioned one about everything. Oh my gosh. And Jesus accepts Mary, who most people think was a prostitute. And Jesus accepts Judas, who was addicted to money and power. Ooh. How much do we understand Judas? So what the heck? I could not reconcile what was happening to I'd always believed that homosexuality was a sin. I'd always believed that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed due to that sin. I'd always believed that Paul was writing about gay sex in the way that I understood it. I'd always understood that Jesus agreed with me, right? And now I'm reading things that made me question my understanding and that seem to confirm the experience I had with the Holy Spirit and my friend Chance. I had to make a decision. Would I stick with identity politics, I was a voting Republican who should believe these things and should I stick with that or should I again lay myself on the potter's wheel of Jesus and let him shape me? I want to say this before I move on. I have a good friend, Ryan Streamett, who's a pastor in Sweetwater, Texas. Ryan should be every person's pastor. 
He is one of the most loving, kind, and generous men I have ever known. And he called me this last week and he said, I'm just calling to check on you, man. He said, I know you and I have never seen eye to eye on this issue, but I want you to know I love you and I'm glad to be in ministry with you. And I know that you live in a bigger town in a more diverse place and you're going to have to deal with this issue. And I live in Sweetwater, Texas, and I'm not going to. And I want you to know I'm praying for you and I love you. That's what diverse friendships and relationships should look like. We laughed with each other. And I fought back tears. This passage I'm about to read to you takes place after the birth of the church, and the church was growing like a wildfire on a windy day. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and had an official responsibility for the entire treasury of the Candace. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in his carriage. The spirit told Philip, approach this carriage and stay with it. And based on what we know about eunuchs, this was a man who was probably orphaned as a young boy and castrated about the time he was eight years old. And some eunuchs were forced into prostitution, as I talked about other, earlier. And some were given other jobs. But no matter what, it was an awful experience. Can you imagine the emotional and physical trauma that this young man had experienced in his life and the loneliness from being an orphan? He'd been in Jerusalem to worship, but he wasn't allowed to go into the temple because Hebrew law at the time only allowed for Hebrew men who were in good standing to go inside the temple. And he was not in good standing because he was sexually othered. He was not within the norms of society, and he did not belong to the people of God according to the letter of the law. And he was on his way home. And running up to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asked, do you really understand what you're reading? And this line wrecks me. The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Do you hear his heart and the heart of a million other people who've been pushed away from the church because they are other? Before anyone explains things to them, they are pushed away because they are other and they don't even get the chance to ask questions. This is crazy. Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. 
and his humiliation justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? Why do you think this eunuch was so interested in the Messiah? This Messiah who was humiliated and separated and cut. Do you think it's because he felt some sort of personal connection with someone who was humiliated, separated, and cut? I do. He wanted to know who this rejected Savior was. And the eunuch asked still, tell me about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to them. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What would keep me from being baptized? And I'll tell you right now, Philip could have said, oh, well, let me take it back to the leadership board. <laughs> let me talk to the board of ordained ministry about this. We love you, but he ordered that the carriage halt. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. There's a poor Jewish rabbi named Jesus who started a movement. And in that movement, everyone was welcome. Everyone was given a place at the table. Everyone was ushered into the kingdom of God. The only sin that made Jesus so mad that he threatened hellfire and damnation was the sin of religious leaders putting a stumbling block in front of people who were headed towards the kingdom. Philip baptizes this man who was sexually other. He was not seen as normal because he did not do things the way everyone else did. Remember, some people, according to Jesus, are born this way. Some choose it. And some have it done to them. Either way, they are other to the religious world Jesus and Philip lived in, and they are other to our religious world as well. Philip baptizes him. In the United Methodist Church, we believe there are two sacraments, two sacred moments, two things that we high up, hold up as the height of what can happen in our religious experience. One of them is baptism, and the other is communion. I can baptize any person that I want to. And I can serve communion to any person that I want to. These are sacraments. These are big things. This is huge. But they can't get married. So I ask you, do we worship at the altar of sex and marriage, or do we worship at the altar of Jesus Christ? For me, I stand by these words. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now faith, hope, and love remain. These three things. And the greatest of these is, as long as I have breath, I will call people to faith. I will call you every time I see you in this church to faith to surrender your life and put it on the potter wheel of Jesus Christ, that poor rabbi who started this radically inclusive movement. I will ask you to put your life on his potter's wheel and let him shape you into the person that he has called you to be. I will always call you to faith. And I will always call you to hope. We have got to be people who preach hope and live hope and bring hope into the world. We have the opportunity to bring life or death and we bring hope. We are the people of the resurrection. 
And I will always, always, always call you to love. To love the Republican, to love the Socialist, to love the Libertarian, to love the Democrat, to love the whatever. To love our queer neighbors, to love our straight neighbors, we are called to love. And as long as I have breath, I will preach faith, hope, and love in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about to say. 